Hey there. Welcome, everybody, to the Disco Posse podcast. Thank you so much for listening. You're in for a treat. This is an amazing from the heart conversation around business growth, the entrepreneurial mindset, how to formulate incredible teams. This is something that I was really amazed by. You're going to hear from Carl Gould. He's the founder of Seven Stage Advisors, among many other things that he's done. He shares a ton of great lessons. Really, really something that I recommend. If you're at all in the business or startup space, this is an absolute must listen. Uh, and Carl's just such a, a great human to chat with. He, he really, it was a pleasure to spend a lot of time with him. Of course, I've got to make sure that I give a shout out to the folks that actually make all of this good stuff possible as well before we jump into the show. So make sure, hang on for a second and say hi to our friends over at Veeam Software because they've got you covered for everything you need for your data protection needs. Because before you grow your business, you got to protect it. And you protect it by making sure that you back that thing up, whether it's on-premises, in the cloud, your cloud-native workloads, everything, including your SaaS, Microsoft Teams, Office 365. Ooh, and there's much more stuff coming. Not just protection, but disaster recovery, orchestration, the whole kit and caboodle. Is that a Canadian thing? It may be. Anyways, go to vee.am forward slash Disco Posse and you can find out everything they've got so that you've got everything you need for your data protection needs. And next up, because you think about protection, privacy is one of the greatest things you can protect. And definitely as somebody who travels a lot, I've got to make sure that I'm protected wherever I go. And for that, I actually use ExpressVPN. I was really, really happy because they were able to uh, be a part of the podcast. So you can head on over to tryexpressvpn.com forward slash Disco Posse. Check it out for yourself. And that's because, hey, we're in a world where our digital footprint is an incredible door to potential risk. So let's reduce the risk and make sure you use a VPN and protect your traffic wherever you are. And one last thing before we jump in, of course, if you want to get the best devilishly good coffee around town, you got to go to Diabolical Coffee. But that's the beauty part. doesn't matter what town you're in. You can order it anywhere. So go to DiabolicalCoffee.com. Amazing coffee. Incredibly cool swag. In fact, some would say it's diabolically good. So go check it out. And thank you again to all the folks that are supporting. And with that, we're going to jump in because this is the show. This is the fun. This is Carl Gould, Seven Stage Advisors. And with that, welcome to the Disco Posse Podcast. Hi, this is Carl Gould. I'm the CEO of Seven Stage Advisors, and you're listening to the Disco Posse Podcast. Carl, thank you very much. This was a really neat treat when I saw your name come up on a guest list because I thought, good golly, like I, I'm literally in this space constantly, both through my own direct work in, in my own startup world, as well as with advisory and, and lots of other folks. And when I saw the opportunity to be able to have you on, it was really exciting because the one thing that we really don't get a chance to do is to be able to go to people who've been successful in the path we wish to walk. And one of the most common problems is everybody, because we're humans, we start to walk that path alone and then figure it out the hard way. So Carl, if you want to give yourself 
an intro for folks that are new to you here in the audience, and then we'll talk about the work that you've done and ultimately how that's affecting what you're doing with, with your firm and the goal of, you know, what is, what is, what makes Carl Gould tick and, and, and what is the seven stage advisors? Sure. So, um, so thank you. This is great. I love the opportunity to share whenever I can. Um, so my, my journey and my path started out, I was going to college for accounting and finance. I had a pretty bad leg injury and I had to leave school and I was paying my own way for everything. So um, as one of 10 children and a large family, um, you know, there are not a lot of handouts going around in our family. So <laughs> yeah. you had to, whatever you wanted, you earned, you worked for. And, uh, and so I realized that I wasn't going to be able to uh, go back to school where I was at. I started my first entrepreneurial venture just as a way to make some money. I knew landscaping, I knew landscape design and installation because I did it in high school. And so I started my first business. I grew that business every year for seven years and then I sold it. Then I started a construction and real estate development company. Owned that business for 12 years, sold that. And, um, and, uh, but all the while I was doing coaching as a side hustle. So I was part of the gig economy before the, there, the, there were gigs, you know. Before it was a thing, right? <laughs> before it was like a thing, you know. And, and speaking of that, if there were hashtags at the time, the hashtag would have been hang up the hammer because I wasn't crazy about my construction business. I was good at it. It was successful, but it wasn't my thing. It was my passion. I found my passion in coaching and speaking and helping others. And really what that led me to was, a life of working with small to mid-market business owners, showing them how to differentiate their business because I had to hustle my way. I didn't have a lot of mentors. I didn't have a lot of coaches in the beginning. I kind of had to find my way. As a matter of fact, when I started coaching, there were no real processes at the time. I was doing coaching for Tony Robbins and Stephen Covey and uh, Franklin Covey Planning and Dale Carnegie Leadership and Situational Leadership by Ken Blanchard. And there was the model but not necessarily the coaching method. So I wrote a coaching method that is widely used today. Um, and uh, so that was kind of my contribution to the coaching and consulting community was to do that. And since 2002, well, since 91, I've been coaching, but since 2002, we've been working with com companies now in over 68 countries. And we've been working with companies of all sorts, how to differentiate how to, um, how to scale their business and, and bring the owner from an owner-operated, self-employed to a true business owner, running a true business machine that generates cash without their, them being there. Yeah, and it's an interesting thing that, right? You can become an owner-operator in the same way you can become a parent. There's no license required. It's very limited amounts of, you know, the point of entry is fairly easy. You can just jump in, get started. Even if you're doing this sole proprietor, mm -hmm. you don't even need to go the LLC route. You just go out, you know, it doesn't even need to be hanging a shingle. You could literally just, you know, as you and I both started, right? Just grab a lawnmower, uh, get out there and, and, and start doing business. But what they don't tell you is that you are entering into a sea of first mistakes as well as first experiences. And, you know, so when you looked at your folks that you were looking to as mentors, and you've named a lot of incredible folks that we all, you know, like they literally wrote the books on these things. You know, a lot of us grew up, we read Awaken the Giant Within, we read How to Win Friends and Influence People, publishing date in the 20s, by the way, right? People don't right, even realize sure. that Carnegie has been at this for a while. They think of it as if he's 
like he's he's long since passed, you know, and that was the problem is that we we never revisit these things ourselves. We just we read the book, we think we've learned the lesson, but then we don't revisit coaching. We don't revisit changes as we grow the business. So, you know, how did you learn yourself to take these methodologies or take these, you know, sort of systems and then come together with we have the seven stage approach and, and, and your coaching approach. Yeah. Well, in, in the very beginning, when I started coaching, it was 1991. And I said, I really love this. I want to do this full time. But um, coaches at the time, full time coaches made about $23,000 a year, according to one study that I kind of participated in. And late, you know, 10 years later, I participated in another study and full-time coaches were making $78,000 a year. And I'm like, wait a minute, I live in New Jersey. <laughs> I've got a family, a house. You can't live on it. You simply can't yeah. live on it. And there was an expression back then that coaches had to take a full-time job in order to feed their coaching addiction, you know, cause <laughs> you couldn't make any money on it. And, uh, and so I, um, <laughs> so what I said was, okay, how do I manage an engagement? How do I manage a session? How do I acquire a client? What do I tell them? And so since I was looking around and I couldn't find, you know, the Bible or the playbook at the time, I started writing it down and I really did it just for me. The goal though, was you had to be able to invoice at least six figures. If you were going to, you know, after taxes and everything else, if you weren't invoicing six figures, you're not the primary breadwinner in your family, likely, certainly not where I live. Right. And so I said, I've got to be able to invoice at least a hundred thousand dollars you know, so there's enough left over as so I can live in New Jersey, have a family and this be my primary job, you know? And so, um, so I was able to do that. In other words, I, I created this model, but at the time I was doing a lot of disc, uh, behavioral assessment, um, uh, uh, profiling and, and, and debriefing with our clients. That was pretty standard tool at the time. And it still is, but there are many others at the time that was the tool. And so I remember I'm sitting down with a couple of clients and what first client was owner of a $250,000 printing company in New Jersey. My next client was a high ranking um, uh, executive in IBM. And I remember debriefing their disc profile. And I said, okay, well, what do you consider your strengths? What do you consider your blind spots to be? Now let's talk about your business or your division. What do you consider to be their strengths? And what do you consider to be their blind spots? You know, and interestingly enough, even though they're vastly different organizations, the personality of the business mirrored the personality of its leader or owner. And I said, wait a minute. Whoa, whoa, whoa. So I said, okay, well, what if, if there's four quadrants to your personal individual personality, what if there is a corresponding business function that because of your strengths and blind spots, there'd be an overlap between the business and the person? And so we created this profile that said, I'm going to, you're going to fill out a questionnaire and I'm going to learn about your business in each of the four quadrants, strategy, business development, operations, and finance. And we all have, you know, four basic dimensions of our behavior and we just do them in varying degrees. And every business has the same four functions. And so I started to notice that where the Individual was strong, the business was strong, where the individual was weak, the business was weak. And so now we've done hundreds of thousands of these. I mean, it's 291,000 at last count. Um, we have validated that the personality of a business will mirror the personality of its owner. So I wrote this whole methodology as if the business were a person 
Well, if I was coaching a person and did their disc assessment, I know how to do a coaching engagement off of that, do it all the time. What if they were a business? Well, they've got four parts of their personality. Well, how, what would I do to grow each part of that personality? What would have to happen? How would I get it scored from a one to a 10? What would the path be? And, um, and it really took on. And so uh, over time, people, the word got out that they're all like, well, all right, you're coaching Carl, but what are you doing full-time? I'm like, this is it. They're like, no, 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 no. But I, but I mean, like, how are you paying for your medical benefits? Well, no, no, this, this is it. Yeah, 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 <laughs> yeah. All, right, all right, it's fine. But are, are you, is you, you have a second income? You're you relying on something? No, this is it. And so a number of people wanted to learn how I was doing it. And from that point on, we've trained or certified or accredited somewhere in the neighborhood of about 7,000 coaches worldwide on all our parts of the methodology because they realize that this is a, this is a model that you can build a whole practice around. And so that's kind of really what put me on the map in the early 2000s. But, and it's really interesting, too, because we, we always had the sort of struggle of like an organization, you know, it's like, is it the sum of the parts? Like what, how much is, uh, is part of the collective? How much is top down? How much ultimately is bottom up? As the organization grows, how does that begin to change as management layers and tiers begin to affect the organizational structure? I mean, there's even a simple thing called uh, known as Conway's law, right? Where uh, an, an organization will design a system which emulates its communication patterns ultimately. So if you've got a you know, development team, this is one of the most common ones I bump into all the time. If you have three developers, they will develop as a small service group. And if you have 12 developers, but you put them in pods of three, they will learn to interact and become loosely coupled and design systems as such, which is, but if you take 80 developers and give them one project manager and one development team lead, they're going to build a monolithic system, right? And finance, marketing, everything emulates the same thing. But if for whatever reason, it's, we seem to think that it's separated. I, it, is this just a human hope that business and people are different? Uh, where does it, where do you think it comes from? Right. Well, you know, it's funny because as, as much as we've advanced, this is what, one of my big takeaways. As, as we are so unique, and we all are, we all have our own fingerprint, we all have our own DNA, and we are so different. We are such creatures of habits, and we are very predictable. We are very predictable creatures. And, you know, it's funny. Like, um, you remember those movies, Alien? Yeah. <laughs> right. In the beginning... In the first alien, the alien gets, in, the, gets inside of a human, and the alien comes out with two legs. And then in a later movie, the alien gets inside of a dog. You're never going to guess how many legs the alien had when it came out. <laughs> and so we, we are like film projectors. Whatever you put on on the inside, however we define ourselves, whatever identity we give ourselves, we broadcast out onto the screen of our life. And what we do is we design a life around us based on how we, uh, how we define and identify ourselves on the inside. So if I'm a truck guy, what kind of vehicle do you think I drive? You know, it's probably a truck. Yeah. I probably live in a truck neighborhood. I probably have a truck family. I probably do truck things on the weekends. However, if I get a Porsche, if I'm a Porsche guy now, I probably drive a Porsche. I live in a Porsche neighborhood. I have Porsche family. I do Porsche things on the weekends. I make Porsche money, right? One's not better than the other, but how we do, you know, a few things is how we do a lot of things because we're so much like that. So we tend to build a world around us based on how we define ourselves internally. 
And so that's why I think that no matter how much different things get, you know, we're still we're still replicating ourselves on the outside. And the the interesting thing comes, especially as you design an organization, if you if you don't set effectively the vision, the personality and the standards by which you're going to measure success and everything within, if you don't set that at the beginning, it will define itself if you're not sort of imprinting that. There's a certain amount. So this is the interesting thing I'd love to hear from you. You know, as you look at somebody who comes to you and they say, Carl, I've, I've got this, you know, moderate-sized organization. I've got 25 people working for me just signed on a co-founder or whatever that, you know, some scenario where they're like, but I feel like this business is not the business that I started. Right. I know. And it's a, a common scenario that I bump into all the time. People are like, I feel like I've lost control of the business. And then I, that itself is a loaded phrase. And I know this is something <laughs> that you, you have a lot of good, a good content on. Well, <laughs> How do you address the last one? Well, when you first said, I think I've lost control of my business, my first thought was, good. Thank God. <laughs> the right. manager in the damn business. Give the control to the managers. Wouldn't that be great? Have managers actually manage. You know, and so, uh, yeah, there's, so there's a part of me that says good because business owners in their nature are micromanagers and they're control freaks. And only I can open the mail and only I, Eric, can go get lunch and bring it back because only I know how to order the perfect burrito. And so they won't. Um, and so there's a couple of fears. The first fear that we hear all the time is, well, yeah, what if I hand it over to them and they screw up and and alienate my biggest client? OK, legit fear. But the other fear they have is, well, what would you need me for if everybody's doing everything? Right. And so part of their attachment to their emotional attachment to their product or their service or their idea is actually what ends up holding the business back. I mean, think about a bottleneck. Where does it happen? At the top of the bottle, right? And so we see, especially when we start working with a client, way too many stuff funnels through a couple, two or three people in the top of the organization. There could be 100, 200 employees, but everything funnels through like one or two or three people. That is so unhealthy for an organization. And so we, um, uh, so first off, we like the idea that you're giving up control of your business. I, I don't mean control, uh, and we want you to give up control of the day-to-day -day activities, not the, not the results, because you can delegate authority, but you can't delegate responsibility. At the end of the day, your, it's always, you know, that flows upstream, and that, there's one person at the end of that, and, you know, and you're at the end of that. You take full responsibility of everything that happens in your organization. But you do need to spread the authority around to have your team make decisions on their own. And so, so for a business owner, you know, we, we, I created something called the seven stages of business success. And there are very, seven very distinct stages that a business owner will go through. And absolutely, stages one, two, three are growth stages. And that's where you're, you're still doing the work. You're an owner-operator, a lot of adrenaline. Everyone's wearing a lot of hats. But stages four, five, six, and seven are your stages of scalability. And that's where you, if you don't give up control of the day-to-day -day and the minutia, the business can't scale. It can grow, but it can't scale. And so we need the business owner to cut the umbilical cord from having to have their hand in everything, hand it off to the people and let them do their job, 
and then, uh, you know, empower them to continue to uh, take initiative, solve problems, and grow the business. It doesn't mean you don't have your hand in things. You are there to follow up, encourage, provide resources, remove roadblocks. Those are the things that you're there to do. But you have to get things done to other people, which is a totally different skill than being an owner-operator. There's the a thing that came out of, uh, well, I'll say it, it was noted most uh, strongly recently from Amazon. Uh, they've got a, they did a book from an, some of the original Amazon team called Working Backwards. And one of the things that they stress, of course, because obviously the scale of Amazon is incredible, is they have to, as you described, right, assign ownership throughout the organization and completely surrender and delegate that ownership. And they call it single-threaded ownership as well. They're even so strict. They're like, if you have, if you're a VP or director or senior director and you've got four projects on the go, then four projects aren't going to get done well. We, they basically right. say, like, that's it. You own this from inception to outcome. And because of that strong single-threaded ownership within the organization, they act as the the original leader, you know, founder did in the first days. And and to be able to scale, they then kind of ultimately just replicate this out. But like you said, it's it's methodologies, it. right? And and it's it's tough. It's really tough. Like human instinct is like, oh, if I if I hand over the entire messaging and of this new platform or whatever. It, it, it's it's a really tough thing, especially as a, a founder. Like they tend to be a type A personality. They like to you know feel like if I touch it, I it feels real. That they're well, my my name's on the building, Eric. You want me to give up that? That's my that's, name that's on that right. building. Yeah, that's part of the problem. It's your damn name on the building. You know, should be the team's name, or or your name should mean something. Like Carnegie, your name should mean something more than just your last name. Right. It should be about your guiding principles or your or, you know, you know, the, the, the core values that you're built on. It's, you, you almost want to tell them like, you know, you know who the CEO of Heinz is? His name is not Heinz, right? Do you know who the CEO of, we know all X company X, you name the company. It's like they've survived decades through multiple leaders and grown and been successful because at some point someone said, this business is itself I am simply a leader of the current stage of this business, right? And, and you, yeah. you choose how much you can accept. But yeah, I mean, there is a lot of, it is tough when your name is on the building. <laughs> Just go, right. Just go talk to somebody who's an investment banker or an M&A merger and acquisition advisor. And you ask them, what, what is their biggest problem when they buy a, bit, a founder-led business? They say one of the first things we need to do is we either have to convince that founder to show them how to scale. Or we have to get rid of them so we right. can scale because they're the, they're the thing that is, is holding them back. But one thing on, on the single thread management um, that you mentioned, responsibility, we have a model we call one metric management. So I'll keep it really simple for all of you business owners who are trying to figure out how do I delegate? How do I do all this? How, what can I possibly do? First thing you do is take any business function in your business and do what's called a process map. And it's basically a workflow. Who does what in what order? Think of a relay race. Runner one hands off the baton to runner two and they each have their role and they run around. So there's a bunch of boxes. Who does what in what order? Step one, step two, step three, step four. Take each box and assign an owner. Eric, you have box number one. Carl, you got box number two. All right, got it. And then 
you say, what would be success in this box? What is the one metric we are going to assign to this box to say we've done it right? Maybe it's percentage of orders fulfilled. Maybe it's your cost of goods cost, your gross margin. Maybe it's uh, how quickly you turn it around. Uh, maybe it's uh, your, your reviews or your net promoter score. Whatever it is, pick one. And then put that person in charge of that box and that metric. And all you do is manage them to that metric. So think about it for a second. I'm in box number two. You're in box number one. If I say, all right, great. Thank you. I own box number two. Well, who do I have to make friends with to make sure that I do, do, do my job well? Box number one and box number three. I can't act on my own. By its very nature, I've got to make friends with you, Eric, in box number one, and Joe, Jane or John in box number three, because you're going to hand me some things, and i got to do my thing with it, and then I've got to hand it off. I have an output that I give to the next box. And so by its very nature, I have to communicate throughout the workflow. I cannot work in a silo because you've put me in charge of a metric that requires inputs and outputs from other people. And so we have found that the one metric management works really well because at the end of the day, most of your team, they don't care about anything else. I remember one of my last jobs, I was a bartender, professional bartender. And I mean, I would be concerned. I would be, I would show, you know, that I was worried if one of the bouncers didn't show up that night. But what did I care? I'm not getting in trouble if the bouncers don't show up. I'm not getting in trouble if the, they don't collect enough money at the, at the front door, right? The cover charge. I got in trouble if my liquor cost was off, I upset a client, a customer, or I you know, didn't show up for my shift or something to do with the bar. So give me my metrics for the bar. At the end of the day, that's all I care about. And then you can manage me around that. Now, this brings up the other interesting challenge and I'll say you often find where a leader comes in versus a person that's been put in charge in that, in that same way that you assign responsibility and give them that sort of uh, that, you know, one box, one metric, one goal, where do you find, or do you find sometimes where people also then get the, you know, not my circus, not my monkeys, like you got a problem in your box. Uh, you let me know how it goes, Carl, because my box is going great. Like, is there ever, how do we deal with that as we find that people may become a little bit sort of siloed and, and attached to sure. their metric as their success and not concerned about the greater good? Well, sure. So you're um, uh, in, in all that, what I'm about to say will cover almost all cases, but so let's start there. So if I'm in box number two, and you're screwing up box number one, you are impacting me. I have a vested interest in the box to my left, and everybody does. Because if Eric doesn't do box number one well, I can't do box number two well. And if I don't do box number two well, John or Janie can't do box number three well. So going upstream, we are all typically concerned about the box behind us, right? Because that box, we need that input from that box in order that function in order to do it. When I was a bartender, I was very concerned about the bar backs because they would stock the beer and liquor into the bar. Without that, I can't run a bar. So I was always very, very concerned with them. Now, if somebody, if somebody else on the other side impacts my metric, I'm concerned about that too. Because when I was a bartender, I was a young guy, didn't really understand a lot about restaurant business. But my, my boss showed me my one metric, and it was liquor cost. 
And they sat me down and they said, hey, Carl, your liquor cost has to be between 19 and 21 percent. Over 21 percent, we're going to think you're stealing from us. <laughs> Under 19 percent, we're going to think you're stealing from the customer. And I was like, oh, wow, gosh, I, geez, I, you know, I just thought I was pouring drinks here. And so this was after my first month of working. And, they, and I said to him, I'm like, uh, so uh, what's my number? And they said, well, your number's 23. And I said, really? You think I'm stealing from you? Now, remember, I was only 30 days into the job. And these guys were funny, kind of sarcastic. And so they said, no, Carl, we don't think you're stealing. We think you still suck at your job. But yes, three <laughs> months from now, if it's a 23, yes, we are going to think you're stealing from us because you'll know how to do it at that point. And so they gave me some tips. So I'm thinking about this the whole time. I'm like, gosh, what am I doing? You know? And it, it, it dawned on me. So I'm talking to the bar backs and they're loading my bar. I'm pouring drinks like crazy. And so I take the drinks. I leave them. I leave an order to the side for one of the servers. She comes up. She puts everything on the she comes up, puts everything on the tray, starts walking, dumps the whole tray. The whole tray fell. And, I, and then it hit me. I'm like. That's where some of my liquor cost goes. And so I bought all the servers together during one of the breaks. And I said, we're going to train on how to load the tray. That does not happen again because all of those, I realized that liquor cost doesn't go on their box, went on mine. Right. So if there's any other box that impacts me, I'm going to be very interested that, you, that we work together to get your box well. And in the overwhelming majority of business activities, there's enough overlap that I have to be concerned about other people's boxes. There will be some times where, like, you know, the server's across the room and she dumps food. I'm like, no, it sucks to be you. That doesn't do anything for me, right? Now, if she keeps doing it, to some extent, I can help her. But that's where I think managers come in and say, all right, you're struggling here. Let's work on that. It's, there's no other line worker that can really help you here. This is more of an organizational challenge. But the over, if you set up the one metric management system right, the team self-polices because they simply can't get their job done without the help of others. Well, that's what I was going to say. In in effect, you've created a mesh protection that each body, each entity has its you know left and right reach, forward and back, up and down, whatever it's going to be. And then, in the same geometric way, that next person ultimately you've got complete coverage as long as everyone is looking to their left and looking to their right and protecting sure. yep. the flow. That. It also, it, some of the phrasing comes up and it reminds me of Eli Goldratt. So one of the famous uh, folks sure. in Toyota manufacturing and the goal uh, and in development, I know this one too very well because it ultimately spawned what we call DevOps, you know, as a methodology and, and Gene Kim and a lot of folks. And theory of constraints, yeah. Right. And it's, it, it is so radically simple when you see it in play, but it's, it's a it's a behavioral change to adopt. But once you do, you're like, oh, easy, right? Let's just look on the line and look where the bottleneck is. And ultimately you you subjugate that constraint, thus releasing it to the next phase. If you have a now you've moved the constraint, does it still exist? Does it change? And it becomes a way of of measuring and then ultimately creating a, a better flow across the system, which then creates profitability in the end. That's the yeah. goal. Right. Now, this is yeah, an interesting no thing question. as well, that one thing that does come from in it, in its perfect self-policing system, it should work. 
And then there's also this idea that sometimes, and I guess I, I sort of implicated this before, right? That someone's going to be like, hey, like I kind of only care about my bits, right? Someone often says, and Goldrat quotes this, show me how you measure me and I'll show you how I behave. Correct. So right, right on. You, you assign the metric and that becomes the only thing that you care about because you're paid based on that thing. How yeah. do we prevent that? Yeah, so this is, this is tricky. So here's where... Um, I'll share with you what my observation is. My observation is that often business owners share too much information with their, um, with their line workers. I'll say anything below the manager level. And what it does is it scares them and it unsettles them. You know, uh, going back to the personality of an employee, personality of employee chooses employment, traditional employment, because they like predictability, they like security, they like consistency. And so if you're blinding them with this huge dashboard, like, you know, you're in sales, but let me show you what's going on in the factory. Like, really? You know, so you can overwhelm your staff. So we very much like simplicity. Now, the, 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 um, the trick with the one metric management is the right metric. Because the, the metric has to have implications that other parts of the business, um, the other parts of the business will, uh, will also, you know, celebrate success with your success. And so um, there, is, there is some truth to it. And I, you know, if you were to take a line worker and say, well, here are all the things that are impact the business, the importing, the exporting, you know, wait a minute, I'm like Joe Rivet. I do four rivets on a door here in, in step number 47. You're telling me about the supply chain somewhere in China that I know nothing about, you know, and we have found that that just unsettles a company. And so I totally agree. Show me the behavior and I'll show you the incentive, you know, or At the same time, at the same time, we have to find the balance of making sure that whatever metric we give to that person is relevant to that person and they can understand. It. Here's an example. In almost no company will any one employee ever make as much money as the business will in one year. Right. A $50,000 employee, a million dollar business, you tell me that we're going to do a million this year. I can't relate to a million dollars. I've never seen a million dollars. I don't know what it looks like. I don't know what it smells like. If I save 100% of my money for 20 years, I might see that. And you're giving me, you're throwing at me millions of dollars, right? So, um, but what I can relate to, you say, it cost me a million dollars to run this business. I don't even know what that means. However, we do a, we do a metric called cost per minute. You know, it costs $8.46 to run this business every minute, whether we do work or not. So, Mr. or Ms. So-and-so, you being five minutes late to this meeting and us and holding us up, that costs this business over $40 just by you being late. So all of you that are doing your shopping on Facebook or, or LinkedIn or you're you know, booking your vacation or you're coming back a little late from work, I don't want to hear it during your, your, your reviews when you tell me you want more money. Because guess what? You burned it when you showed up five minutes late. Because whether we do any business or not today or not, it costs $8 a minute to run this business. And you all know how much money you waste every day. So when it comes time for bonuses, when do we get raises? I don't want to hear it because you know what? You're setting all of your raises and bonuses on fire because you can't show up on time. Or you can't, you can't have consistent output. And so we like to bring it down to what's relevant and they can relate to. 
Yeah, that's an interesting one because we, I remember when I was actually at one organization, what we had was we had a water gun on every meeting room table. <laughs> and it was, it was a funny way to be very exacting and kind of a little, a little gross in how we handled, you know, time management, but it, it was necessary. And then it became funny because what would happen is if you showed up, you know, it was like when you showed up to school after homeroom bell rang, they closed and locked the door and you like banged on the door looking through the window and the teacher says, go down and get a late slip, right? So we would do the same thing in meetings and you show up late, you get a chest full of water. Like you literally would, someone will yeah. give you two squirts and it was, it was campy. And because we, we knew in the end, it was like, look, we all have to respect each other's time. What ended up happening was it fundamentally changed the way we did time management as an organization, because this fun campy thing ultimately meant that we were aware of the impact now of the cost of being late. Cause you were late to one meeting, then you're going to stay late for the current one. Cause you've lost respect for the time boundary. Yeah. And then as yeah. a result, it, it then trickles down into your task management and project management and cost management. Right. So that funny little thing all of a sudden became a cultural when that affected productivity, right. which is kind of cool. Yeah. And, and look, we most, almost all of the people that I've met and worked with over the years, they genuinely want to do a good job. They don't want to be the one complaining thing that saying things aren't good for them or, or they didn't produce or they didn't get their job done on time. Or if they were asked to do something extra, um, they just wanted to get it done and not be the one saying I can't do it. And so with the best of intent, People try to spin all the plates and, and wear all the hats and, and handle everything. And what happens over time is when those boundaries are, are blurred, the business suffers overall. And that's why, and that's, yeah, so, so installing the discipline into the company is paramount because ultimately, and that means you have to say no to certain things, um, and the organization has to make it okay to say no to certain things. So we have... We have a policy in our office that you will not get in trouble for a mistake as long as you bring it to us first. We don't hear it from a client. We don't hear it from a colleague. Hey, I made a mistake or I didn't do this or I wasn't able to do that, get that done. We bring it to us. And it could be a mistake. It could be a transgression. It could be something that doesn't get done. You have amnesty as long as we hear it from you. And what we have found is that helps people feel, feel open to be vulnerable. And it's a safe, safe space for them to share. Yeah, that it becomes the thing of, you know, transparency and trust that grows. And that was it. I remember my first like legitimate, you know, large business job. I worked at a huge insurance company doing desktop support and yeah, something had gone wrong. And, and that was, you know, my, my manager was like, by the time I got upstairs to, to think about how I was going to handle this, you know, my manager had said, Hey, so we got a call. I guess there was a problem and he's like, you know, if you feel like you're struggling with anything, he's like, just call. And that was exactly the phrase he says, you tell me there's a problem. We will fix this problem. And there's no, no negative result. He says, but it's when the customer calls, when the client calls, then I get worried because this is, you know, and ultimately I saw now, especially years later, because if you're willing to kind of hide that thing, that thing gets bigger at one point. And then you just get bigger at hiding and sure, it creates right. an unfortunate culture 
of self-protection for out of fear, not even out of malice, just for fear of retribution. But if you open that up early and you create that transparency and trust, then, you know, people are willing. My, the old cl- classic quote is like, you know, you don't file the guy that made a million dollar mistake because he's never going to make two of those mistakes. <laughs> right. <laughs> that's true. Yeah, that's funny. The uh, um, So, yeah, the, the culture, if you what we, you know, have been talking about a lot today is a performance based culture. You know, not an activity-based culture, but a performance-based culture. You know, you take responsibility for your box. You, you're, it's okay to, to admit a mistake and fix it. Um, so it's, an, it's a level of accountability. And this is where a lot of businesses actually make a mistake is they will hire, they'll try to hire uh, great people. They'll try to instill a culture and then they will put in accountability measures. Right. And we have found that that's the opposite because usually accountability is is a you know collateral damage to a um to a good culture and it doesn't have to be but it oftentimes is you get a great culture and most people think that's about always agreeing and always being friendly and and always uh, and not holding somebody accountable we say set the standards first then hire people that are willing to be judged by a standard whatever that standard is the, only, the right standard is the standard that everyone in the company agrees on. You know, the company gets together and says, here's our rule book. Here is our playbook. Here's what we want to play by. And above the line, we're all good. Everybody's got a job. We do well. Fall below the line and we're in jeopardy, you know. And so now all of a sudden, you know, going back to our conversation earlier, what happens if somebody's floundering? Well, if we set a whole set of standards for the company and I've got goals for my box, if they're violating the standards or impacting my box, I mean, that covers 99% of the game right here. Right. You know, the, the team will work together whatever, wherever they can't management fills in. But as a company, you've got to set your standards first and then build the team around those standards. Now we've talked a lot, and this is very much in the, in the self, I guess, of the organization. But if you don't mind, Carl, I'd love to hear, how do these now these methodologies relate to competitive positioning and measuring yourself against the outside forces, whether it's you know natural business you know and ultimately competitive forces that are in the market? How much do these same methodologies then translate to how you can compare against the outside forces that you can't necessarily affect? Uh, I'm curious how that comes into play. How, how do you mean exactly? Like if I think of to, to measure success internally, of course, I have my own KPIs. I've got my, my measurements. I've got my understanding of the organizational sure. structure. But then I've got, you know, the, the other podcaster that's getting more guests than me or uh, more right, right, money, yeah. right? Like how do I then take the same methodology that I've built my foundation on and then look at measuring against external. Sure. Thank you. Thank you for that. Yeah. So I would, um, I'm not a huge fan of competition, meaning, um, you know, if you have differentiated your business enough, you will have a core set of clientele and your ability to, to, um, you know, satisfy and really make that core clientele happy. You could survive right alongside of somebody who is a quasi competitor. You know, I, you know, if you think about, uh, Billy Joel and Elton John, they are both piano playing, 
pop and rock stars, and they came up around the same time. And yet, I don't know, I've never met somebody who says, oh, no, sorry, I bought the Billy Joel album. I won't buy the Elton John album. I go to both <laughs> concerts. You know, as a matter of fact, they did a concert together, you know, so um, a whole concert tour. And so to me, I like to say, who are, who's my target client? My avatar, my ideal client profile, persona, you know, there's a lot of different ways to call it. And then I say, what are the top five complaints they have about working with people in my industry? What's top of mind of them? What are they just, it drives them crazy. So I'll check out the reviews. I'll listen to the objections I get during my sales process. I'll listen to clients who say, well, I hired you because you do this better than the other people that we interviewed. And I'll say, okay, that's what's top of mind of these people. And I'll take those top five complaints, or if it's three or seven or however many, but five seems to be the number. And I will weave them into my offerings. So you're, you know, you're, you're afraid of people being late. All right, if we're late, we pay. You're afraid of uh, the, the cost not remaining consistent? Great. You don't change the scope. We guarantee the price will be the same. We'll guarantee our work for a certain period of time. We'll be responsive. Whatever it is that, you know, um, and um, Zappos did this very well. Zappos in the beginning. Now we all think like, oh, yeah, buying apparel online. Of course, everyone does it. That's right. <laughs> Makes sense Zappos, now in hindsight, right? <laughs> it sure does, right? And then in, in the beginning, everybody thought they were crazy. I don't know if you remember when Zappos first started out, they were just distributing shoes. And everyone was like, well, I'm not going to buy shoes off the internet. What if they don't fit? What if I don't like them? You know, you're going to charge me shipping. Returning is a hassle. So they said, if you can't decide between two pairs, we'll send them both. Free shipping and free returns. So they just, all they did was they took the top challenges off of the table. You're unsure about shopping online? It's okay. We'll send you everything you need. You're afraid of shipping costs? We'll take that off the table. You're afraid of, of returns and the hassle of that? We'll take that off the table. So in their case, it was three, but they just promised that's not going to happen to you if you become our customer. And everyone was like, oh, my God, what, what are you guys doing? And turned out not only did they were they very successful as a company, but they basically changed and trained everybody that it is okay to buy online apparel and, and clothes. And so, you know, they... So to me, there's a lot of shoe distribution companies, but at any given time, there, is, there are industry complaints that someone is simply not addressing. And if you address them, you don't have competition. So I'm not, I don't get too hung up on that. Um, I am more concerned with who is my client, what do they want, and what will they pay for, and what will they overpay for? If they're passionate about what I do, would they pay a premium? And what would I have to provide so they would pay my premium? And I will go at it that way. And I think you, you know, if you if you are your signature offering or skill or attribute about your company is unique enough, you will eliminate your competitors pretty quickly. Forocean.com. Buy my bracelet, right? Twenty dollar bracelet, by the way, guys. Yeah. You know. <laughs> What does it cost a dollar to make, right? You go down to uh, the Jersey Shore where I live, you know, bracelets you can buy for five bucks on the same rack as a bracelet for $20. But they say, we will clean up a pound of uh, plastic from our oceans and our beaches. And by the way, this, this thing you're about to put on your wrist is all post-consumable 
uh, post-consumable recyclable uh, plastic, and they sell like hotcakes. So if you differentiate yourself enough, plenty of bracelets you can buy, but they are five times the cost, and they sell at a higher clip. Wait, and this is the interesting thing because it's it's not just the product that's differentiated; it's the way in which you deliver and maintain the relationship yep. with the product. And like you said, uh, you know, I, it's funny even when I when I tell people that like like we go through the the rigmarole at the start, like this is what we're going to talk about, this is how we're not going to do it. And I, and I often say like we we can edit anything you want if you want to bag a thing out of it. Never had to do it. Only had to do it twice. Right. Once because actually the Wi-Fi was so bad we lost the signal and they couldn't even con- it was unlistenable. The second one was sadly the company was in the throes of a real difficult time and hadn't notified the people who were on the podcast. And then like four weeks later, they'd entered into a, a private equity acquisition and they had to suddenly mm-hmm. shift. So they they said probably yep. wouldn't would be ill-timed for us to release a podcast about our successes. <laughs> and you know, fair yeah, enough. I think. But in just laying that down up front, I've never had to edit because most people, they don't think about it. Like, but if you, I've worked with podcasters and broadcasters before. And if you don't say that at the start, the thing that gets said every time at the very end of the recording is, when can I get a copy of the recording so we can make sure that everything was okay and check for anything we need to edit out. And it's like a, an right. odd thing. That's what I'm like, I'm just going to say this right up front. I'm not going to edit this, but it's going to go great. <laughs> yeah, right. Well, the funny thing about needs is when when you satisfy someone's need, they no longer need it. Yeah. You know, and so, uh, yeah, so you're you're addressing for them what their concern is. And then, you know, more than likely, because you, you were open and transparent and you were willing to address the concern, they felt like, oh, you know what? Eric's got his, you know, hands, you know, firmly on the wheel. He knows what he's doing. I can trust him. And that built a lot of credibility, likely. Yeah, we, I, I, years ago I did, uh, I was building PCs. Like that was like back in the day, that was a thing. You know, I would, I would, I would build a bunch of desktop PCs and I went to go to contract for a government. And it was funny. I'd never done this for a small government in Northern Ontario. So I submitted my RFP. I'm literally an 18 year old kid just like submitting this, like, why not? Let's just see if it works. And I had everything on price. I had it on all the stuff. And I was like, that was all I knew. I'm like, price it appropriately, make sure I nailed the story. They don't know me from Adam, you know, hopefully my price works. In the end, they chose another provider, not because I was 18 years old and they didn't know me from Adam, but because that provider said, I'll give you 10 years warranty on the part on the labor. And I hadn't said anything about that. And, you know, after the fact, of course, because it's the way the contract works, you can't revisit it. And I thought to myself, I'll give you 99 years on the labor. I know I did it right the first time. <laughs> sure. It was just that assurance that in, said, in, in that case, though, your competitor differentiated themselves enough. They did. Yeah. Separated themselves enough. So well done them. You know, it was and fantastic. That, yeah. That's exactly it. So, yeah, yeah it, it's funny. I think we get wrapped around the axle as like product creators and marketers and, and selling folks of like, we, we look to the outside to find what's prominent inside. And if you look at competitors more than you look at your customer problem, you're in real trouble, right? And it's easy to, but it's easy to do. It's, it's very easy when you see the same name in every account and you're like, oh, good golly, here's product X again. 
but you know, if you find yourself focusing out, so that's the question, Carl, how often do people like get a little too focused on that and how do you make sure you steer them back to that customer focus? Yeah, I, I, it's, it's really easy for a business owner to fall in love with their product or service, you know, cause we spend all day, every day thinking about it. We go get credentials. We all have alphabet soup after our name in our particular industry. We've gotten this degree and that accreditation and that license and that certification. So we figure, oh, well, if I'm thinking about it this much, everybody else must be too. And they must really care. They must really care about every little, you know, feature of the, of my product or service. I mean, just think about your phone. I don't know anybody who can use a hundred percent of the functionality of their phone, you know, and yet, um, so as a, as a uh, customer, I saw as a provider, remember that, that it's really about understanding what they want and what features you offer that they really care about. Um, I sat in on a, um, uh, a keynote by uh, Ronnie, I believe his name's Ronnie Wu. Uh, they were the second or the first ever fitness app licensee of Apple, and they created the Steps app for the Apple Watch. And in the first year, it was really successful. In the second year, they went back to the drawing board and they said, oh, you know, it's not quite as accurate. You walk 10,000 steps and it really said you only walk 9,995. And so they put, poured all of this energy into being more accurate only to find out people didn't really care. <laughs> well, it's kind of good. I mean, we, with our phones, we have a camera on those. That camera is not nearly as good if you, than if you bought the cameras we used to own. Right. right. We had a flip phone and then we had a camera, right? The camera was great. And the camera on a phone is never going to be as good as a professional camera, but we will settle for less quality because it's not as important to us. Right. The selfie, which is the most popular photo taken, has the inferior camera on the front. We know that with the, you know, TikTok is based on selfie videos. Yeah. They are producing an entire website based on a low, the lowest possible quality video that can be filmed on that, on that phone. It's based on that. Right. And so, you know, and you would say, oh my God, well, we've got, we've got to make this better. Well, yeah, maybe, yeah, work hard at it, but let's make sure the customer actually cares, you know, yeah. and you hear, you hear very successful social media influencers over and over and over again will tell you it's not about the video quality guys doesn't that be perfect you know we're not we're not filming an infomercial we're doing a national television and we're not broadcasting we're not doing a movie you know it's raw it's authentic it's me sharing me with you and that's what you want you want the authenticity that's number one everything else beyond that you know we can work on but it's secondary yeah, it becomes a way of like, yeah, what's the real, ultimately, it goes back to the theory of constraints, right? What's the real constraint that you need to yeah. get away from? I, as a cyclist, you know, and I've got a crazy expensive camera now just for fun, you know, like I'm like, I'm a nerd, so let me get into it. But as a cyclist, I do the same thing. And, and but I very quickly understand price to performance as a ratio. And someone would say to me, like, you know, well, goodness gracious, like you spent $2,000 on the bike, but, you know, I, I talked to the guy next to me and he'll spend 8,000 on the bike and I would meet a lot of first time riders and they'd start off. And the first thing they do is they go to the bike shop and they ask the bike person, you know, <laughs> what kind of bike should I get? I'm thinking about going out for a weekend ride once in a while. Let me get you this $8,000 bicycle. Like, and it becomes a thing where you literally chase grams and ounces, 
you know, and someone, so one of the guys that I ride with, he says, you know, I'm thinking I need to upgrade my frame because I want it. Like I can take a pound off of this frame. If it is 2,500 more and then I can do this and do that and all these different things. And I said, you know, what's even easier, Joe, don't eat dessert twice a night, twice a week, right? <laughs> like that's, if you want to take a pound off your frame. I'm going to save you money twice. You're going to eat less and you'll weigh one pound less. Yeah. The, the bike frame is not the problem. <laughs> right. Sure. We can try to correct that all day long, but that's not the issue here. But in, and I know I hate to hate to open an exciting topic in when we only got a couple of minutes left, but pricing strategy in you've talked, we've talked about self, right? Managing the business as an entity that evolves and leans on itself. And then how we deal with competition and what competition isn't more than what it is, which is great. But now when it comes to pricing, then how do we then take that service that we maybe know and love a little too much and then price it as we go to the market? Yeah. So we, I'm a big fan of uh, your pricing strategy be, being very in tune with your ideal client avatar, because in my way of thinking, your pricing strategy is the number one way that you communicate with your clientele. In other words, the moment you announce your pricing, how much you charge for whatever it is you do, you do two things. Number one is you tell the marketplace who you are. If you charge $10,000 for a watch, you're telling people you're at the higher end of the marketplace. If you charge $100 for a watch, you're telling people you are at the lower end. And, and there's no better or worse. It's just you are signifying your spot in the marketplace. Second thing you're doing is you are telling your customer who they are. You are telling them what kind of buyer they are. And so that's a relationship you got to be very, very careful about. There's a few companies that really get it right. Subaru Motors, Motors really gets that right. I mean, they, they have a relationship with their clientele that's just unbelievable. Their marketing, their advertising is spot on. Rolex, Tesla, right? It doesn't have to be, the, the Walmart, they don't have to be luxury brands, right? You know, um, they can be economy or value-based brands, but those are a couple that really know their customer, price themselves accordingly, and as a result, are constantly rewarded by their clientele. Apple does a good job as well. Yeah, and so, at, the, at the low end, like Swatch, great example, right? Low cost perfect. watches, but they they have a perfect audience, right? Claire's, you know, as a for for tweens and stuff like that. It's like this is not high dollar items, but they the stores are full. <laughs> They're right. doing it right. Yeah, exactly. And so and so you you understanding what type of buyer your client is, is important because if you were to, if you're, if you consider yourself a premium buyer, remember, remember the Porsche guy, right? The Porsche guy, Porsche house, Porsche car, Porsche family, Porsche money, Porsche uh, activities. They also likely consider themselves to be a luxury buyer. So if you price something too low, they're not going to pay attention to it. You, you need to charge over a certain amount before they feel that it aligns with who they are. They don't want you putting out a value brand. The Porsche owners don't want the Porsche everyone can drive. That's the whole reason they bought a Porsche is because not a lot of people can drive them. Whereas, you know, if you were to if you were to gold plate a Subaru, you know, they'd be like, why did why did why did you do that? That's a waste. <laughs> yeah. We are a utilitarian, societal conscious buying group. Why would you gold plate this thing? Why would you waste that that precious earth? 
you know, um, resource on a car when this is a utilitarian safety based buying buying group, right? And so, uh, so you need to price yourself accordingly. Now, once you've done that, we are big fans of offering options with every um, price with every product or service. In other words, if I'm selling you this pen, I will sell you this pen for a dollar. I will sell you a unlimited cap replacement option for a dollar fifty. If for all of you lefties out there, I will guarantee that this doesn't smudge on your hand for two bucks. <laughs> and then ultimately, if this pen ever dries out for three dollars, I will guarantee this thing for as long as you are alive. If this runs out, you send it back to us and we'll replace it for life. So we are big fans of saying, okay, within a category of buyers, there are different levels. And so, so this pen appeals to the person who likes this type of pen. But within that category, that subset, there are people that are willing to pay for more features or overpay. So if I'm a professional writer and I use this pen a lot and I'm lefty, I might go for that Mac Daddy guarantee because I don't like pens that smudge on my left hand. And if I lose a cap, which I always do, you know, you'll replace it. And if this thing dries out, I write a lot. I want to know that I can get it replaced. So within that subset, I might be a buyer of this pen because you gave me the option to buy this thing for $3. So I never have to buy another one in my life. And so pricing, now that all just came through my pricing strategy. Right. And so I just created an entire relationship. We've never met. You don't, I haven't even told you my mission, vision, values yet. <laughs> you don't know if I'm saving the beaches or if I'm polluting the beaches, but I got your attention, didn't I? Now I, I will add other things. <laughs> exactly. I'm like, well, that's not a bad idea. I'm a lefty. I didn't know there was such a thing as a no smudge guarantee. And as a lefty, you know that we deal with that. Right. So, um, uh, so the, your pricing strategy to me, I can go on and on. Uh, forever on this one. I'm really passionate about this, but your pricing strategy, you've got to nail it right. It is one of the first things we look at with our clientele because almost all of them have it wrong. Right. You're underpricing. You are offending your clientele um, in some case, and you are not creating a path for them to say, I am their best customer because I love them. Right? So if you put on a concert, you have to have a front row seating pricing chart. So if somebody can say, I bought front row. I came here to see Eric. I pay. I paid the extra, and I will brag about it. It's uh, it's important. Oh, I tell you, Carl, this sure. is fantastic. Thank you very much for sharing these incredible lessons. And I will recommend. I'll make sure I have links to uh, to your content, to your books, uh, and if people want to engage you uh, for hopefully to get some consulting because you. Uh, I want to hire you right now. <laughs> so we're going to work together on something for sure. Um, it, it's been really, really great to share time. What's the best way that folks can reach out to you? Well, best way to reach me would be through carlgould.com, C-A-R-L-G-O-U-L-D. My email is carl at carlgould.com. Um, very easy to find on the internet. And so if you if you find what I, what I uh, share would be useful in your business or um, as a speaker at your next event, um, uh, that would be a great introduction. So I appreciate the opportunity. 
Yeah, that was. I, I was going to make sure we we made a note of that. Is that you're not just uh, a fantastic coach, consultant, and 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 voice, you know, in directly for your clients. You also do fantastic public speaking. Um, so uh, definitely a must-have for folks that want to really get their get their their sales force, their customer base fired up. Uh, I I'm excited. I know I want to go and I want to get to work right now. You've you've excited me. Uh, it's been a real, a real good learning experience. So Carl, thank you very much for sharing the time today. And thank you so much for the opportunity.